Revelation, and we'll look at verses 4 through 8 of chapter 1. The Revelation to John, beginning in verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is, and who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the rulers of the kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, Paul exhorts us, saying, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things which are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things above, not on things that are on earth, for you've died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And it's that second part, of course, that Paul or that John reveals to us in the book that we're studying and in his greeting to the seven churches, John helps us to do what Paul exhorts us to do in Colossians 3. He helps us to set our mind on things above. And really, through the words that I just read, John helps us to gaze in wonder at the majesty of our God. And you'll notice that, that in these verses, there's a threefold repetition of, of the past, the present, and the future. And, and what this is communicating is that our God is sovereign and that he has always existed. He's with us today and he will bring all of the promises that he has made to pass. In fact, the whole book of Revelation is about the God who has made those promises, bringing those promises to fulfillment. And that's why he introduces the book the way he does. That he is at work now, bringing those promises to fulfillment. And we have a, it's revealed to us how he will actually bring those promises to fulfillment in this book. And, and really, the, the, these verses, 4 through 8, can be broken down into two parts. Uh, the, the, the blessing, grace, and peace from the triune God in verses 4 and 5. And then praise is offered to the triune God. So let's look first of all. At that first one, John begins, verse four, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. So he begins his revelation by an introduction to the seven churches that are in Asia Minor. That's modern day Turkey. And the significance as to why seven churches has been debated uh, certainly part of the reason why John wrote the seven churches is tied to the significance of the number seven that is seen throughout the, the book. I counted 13 different sets of seven that Revelation asserts. And the most probable significance of the number seven being that it reflects fullness or completion. Uh, 
as in the, the seven-day week that God established at creation. It, it is the week is finished, it is done, it is completed, and on the seventh day. And even here in Revelation, God is signifying that he is bringing to completion the work that he had begun centuries ago. And he's presently at work in the church, namely in these seven churches that John is writing to, in bringing his purposes to pass. And so, after John identifies who he's writing to, he then begins to describe the ultimate author of these letters that are penned to the seven churches. He says, grace to you and peace. Now, the significance of this blessing, which begins these letters, is not so much seen in the words grace and peace as much as in who is offering this grace and peace. The one who is, who was, who is to come. This description is is really describing the self-existence and the eternality of God. See, God, unlike everything else in creation, has never had a beginning. He has always existed, and he gives life to all things. In fact, the very nature of God demands that he exists. He is without beginning. He will never end. He is free from all succession of time. He created time, in fact. And he contains within himself the cause of time. And God sees all events from creation to the final judgment as one eternal now, as theologians say. And this does not mean that God fails to see time as an objective reality. He recognizes that we exist in time and he sees our existence in time. But to him, the past, the present, and the future are all one eternal now. He sees the past and he sees the future just as clearly as he sees the present. So, it's not that there is no distinction between past, present, and future, but he sees them as vividly as he sees the present. The the eternality of God is is a a mind-boggling thing. And I would say, actually, for me personally, it is one of the most terrifying aspects of God. Um, I used to say, I mean, I could say way back when I was a young boy, I I used to try and get my mind around the fact that God had never had a beginning And even what was more mind-boggling is the fact that since I have had a beginning, and uh, according to the Bible, I will never cease to exist. Now that's scary to me. The very idea of not having a beginning or an ending is horrifying. And I imagine that the reason for this is because as a finite being, I really have no categories to wrap my mind around what infinity is like. It's too uncomfortable for me. I don't, I'm not created to grasp infinity, only what is finite. And at the same time, I know that even so, my eternal future will not be terrifying. It will be glorious beyond my imagination. But it feels terrifying because I think it's a reflection of the greatness and grandeur of God and something I just can't comprehend about God. I mean, there's been times, even as an adult, when I'll be just meditating on 
God and, and his nature. And when my mind begins to focus on the reality of God's eternal existence, I mean, there's been times where I've almost driven off the road because it's just too overwhelming for me. So I need a resurrected body to be able to not only endure the eternality of God in that concept, but, but to have a mind that can handle it, that can not only handle it, but actually enjoy that. The reason I think it's terrifying for me is because, again, I don't have that body, that mind that can handle it, that one day God will give us something that can, that can withstand his nature as it's fully revealed to us. So this God who is, who was, and is to come is also triune. And all three, all three persons of the Trinity are noted here. The next person he, he notes is this, the Holy Spirit. But he's strangely described as the seven spirits. And we know he's talking about the Holy Spirit because you have the one who is, who was, and is to come mentioned. And then also the Son mentioned after that. The, the Spirit being in between these two other persons. So... Why describe him as seven spirits? Well, I think there's two reasons. This is probably a tip of the hat to Isaiah 11, verses 2 through 3, which speak of the seven operations of the Spirit. It's one of the more well-known passages uh, in Isaiah, uh, as it speaks to the Messiah. The seven operations of the Spirit in the Messiah, who is also the one in focus. And this passage says, the Messiah will have the spirit of Yahweh rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. So the seven spirits being the seven operations of the spirit within the Messiah. And this is coupled with the significance of seven in the book of Revelation, suggesting that what's being signified is that the same spirit who directed the Messiah's ministry upon the earth is also at work in the seven churches, and he will make sure that everything that has been promised for the church and for Israel in the past, the Spirit will make sure it gets brought to completion. And then, of course, Jesus Christ is mentioned. And he's described in three ways, which note again his present work, his past work, and his future work. Verse 5. It says, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. So, the, the faithful witness, it speaks to, God, to Christ's trustworthiness, his faithfulness. Christ never wavered in anything that God asked him to do. Every, he, did, he did the Father's will completely. And as you recall, this word witness that describes Christ here is a massive theme in the book. It, it comes up over 15 times. And the Greek root is martyro, where we get the English word martyr from. And Christ himself is the perfect witness in that he did everything that he was asked and he always spoke the truth. So he's a, he's a perfect example for Christians to follow. And he will bring to fulfillment every promise that he made. He is the faithful witness. He's also the firstborn of the dead. And this description is highlighting Christ's past work when he rose from the dead. You might recall that the same title is used of Christ in Colossians chapter 1. He is the firstborn of the dead. 
That word firstborn there, same word that's used here, it's the word protokos, which, which translates firstborn, but it, it's not so much first in order as first in preeminence. It speaks to Christ's authority. However, Jesus was in fact the first and only person to rise from the dead with the resurrected body. And in so doing, he established the beginning of a new order of creation. In, in rising from the dead, he has provided for all of us to have eternal life. And for, because he's going to give all of us a resurrected body like his. In fact, turn in your Bibles to what it says about Christ as the firstborn of the dead in 1 Corinthians 15. And the parallels between this and Revelation are remarkable. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning of verse 20. It says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. And then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom of God to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he's accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. And Christ rising from the dead also gives us proof not only of the sufficiency of his sacrifice, but it gives us proof that we too will receive resurrected bodies, living proof to us as to what our future bodies will be like. He's also described as the ruler of the kings of earth. Now, although this description of Christ is stated in the present, this reality we know will not be fully realized until the events that are described here in the book of Revelation come to pass. In fact, the phrase kings of earth originates in Psalm 2. You might recall when it says the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed. We saw an expression of this already in the book of Acts that we've been studying on Sunday. As the Jewish leaders set themselves against his church. And this phrase is repeatedly used in the context of the Messianic prophecies. This phrase, the, the kings of the earth. And it's used, in fact, eight times in the book of Revelation. As in Psalm 2, the kings of the earth resist Christ's authority over them, but he will eventually conquer them and rule over them. And the book of Revelation foreshadows these events. Look with me at Psalm 76 as well. These are some of the messianic prophecies given in the Psalms. And they're remarkable. Psalm 76, beginning in verse 7. It says, but you, you are to be feared. Who can stand before you when once your anger is roused? 
From the heavens you uttered judgment. The earth feared and was still. When God arose to establish judgment. To save all the humble of the earth. Salah. Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. The remnant of wrath you will put on like a belt. Make your vows to Yahweh your God and perform them. Let all around him bring gifts to him who is to be feared. Who cuts off the spirit of princes. Who is to be feared by the kings of the earth. Also flip over to Psalm 89. What it says about the kings of the earth. The Lord writes, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. And in Psalm 102, verse 12. But you, O Yahweh, are enthroned forever. And you are remembered throughout all generations. You will arise and have pity on Zion. It is the time to favor her. The appointed time has come. For your servants hold her stones dear and have pity on her dust. Nations will fear the name of Yahweh, and all the kings of earth will fear your glory. For Yahweh built up Zion, he appears in his glory. He regards the prayer of the destitute and does not despise their prayer. And then if you look at these, the Psalms 138, verses 4 and 5, and Psalms 40, 148, 11, they both look forward to a time when those kings of the earth who tremble before Yahweh will eventually rejoice in the presence of Christ. And the point of this title, though, is that Christ is the true ruler of the universe. He is the true king. Even though his kingship, his kingship is hardly recognized today. He is coming to set up his throne upon the earth. And he will punish the wicked at that time. And he will also reward his faithful servants. And the implication for us is that, therefore... He deserves our utmost loyalty. Our utmost loyalty is to Christ. It's not to our nation. It's not to our political party. It's to him. And this description, again, of Jesus, we need to recall, is part of his introduction, his greeting to the seven churches. He's reminding the Christians of who Christ is and who they are called to follow. Just as he was faithful, they need to be faithful. Just as he rose from the dead, they too will rise from the dead. Just as he will reign over all, Christians too will reign with him when he returns. And this brings us to the doxology. Praise to the triune God in verses 5 through 8. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So in this doxology, you'll notice that John praises Jesus both for what he has done, but also for what he will do in verse 7. Let's look at verses 5 and 6 where he praises Christ for what he has done. And notice the first phrase, to him who loves us. To him who loves us. Of all the things to begin praising our Lord for, it begins with love. And rightly so. And it's so good for us to continue to remember how much love the triune God has for us. 
Christ has proven it through suffering on our behalf. And in, in what he's continued to communicate to us about uh, what his suffering on our behalf has accomplished, lest we lose heart. God wants us to be absolutely convinced of the love that he has for us. In fact, John Owen once said that the cruelest thing that we can do to God is to doubt his love for us. Romans 5, 6 says, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And what, what an amazing thing to consider that the ruler of the universe loves us more than we love our own parents, than we love our own spouses, than we love our children. He loves us far more than we could ever love another person. I mean, let that grip you. And that's why he says it. He loves us. And not only has he loved us, but in loving us, he came to free us from our bondage to sin and self-worship, which is what he mentions next. So whereas all the world lusts and craves after autonomy, they want the ability to do whatever they feel like, Christians realize that if to have such an ability would be a curse to us. Unbound freedom to fulfill our lusts would ruin us because we're slaves to sin. If we were slaves to sin, still. And truly, truly, Jesus said, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And, and to have unbridled freedom to act upon our sinful, selfish desires would lead to misery, would lead to uh, degradation, even more despair. And so Christ did not free us to follow our own passions. He died to free us from our passions, that we might have right passions like his. In Romans 6, Paul says, We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Then he gets to this. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin, and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Don't present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought forth from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Now remember the contrast. We're born in this world slaves of sin, but now sin has no dominion over us. We truly have been set free. We do not need to sin ever. We do, but not because we have to. It's because we choose to, foolishly, and yet we're free. And that should give us courage. He has set us free. Christ has freed us from the cruelest of slave masters which is sin. You cannot imagine a more cruel slave master than what sin does. 
It humiliates, it mocks, it teases. It's horrifically cruel to those who are enslaved by it. And so now, I mean, just think about it. What joy we have. We are no longer slaves. We are free from it. It has no dominion over us any longer. And this is exactly why Christians should never boast in any good thing that we do. Because we would never be able to do a good thing unless Christ had set us free first. This is why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1, And because of Him, you were in Christ Jesus who became to us the wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. He has set us free. And because He set us free, we can... We can that's it. And only for that reason, we can serve him in righteousness. Thirdly, it says he made us a kingdom of priests. Now, this is remarkable because this was a promise that was originally given to the nation of Israel in Exodus 19. It says, God said, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. They'll be the treasured peoples of all the earth. And he says, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That was Israel's promise. But here, it's getting applied not just to Israel, but to Gentiles as well. In fact, Peter says, we even serve as priests now because we're part of this temple that he is building. That is the church. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2. I believe you're fairly familiar with this, this chapter. Remarkable chapter. 1 Peter 2 verse 5 it says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We're priests. And then he says in verse 9, But you are a chosen race. A royal priesthood again, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellences of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, so speaking to Gentiles, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so it's important to recognize that when this promise is repeated in Scripture, it's speaking to believers. In Isaiah 61, It speaks to believers serving as priests in the Messianic kingdom when Christ establishes his physical throne upon the earth. And and we will eventually serve in the eternal state as well as priests. And all of this, again, Christ has promised to us. These promises are as real as you or I sitting here in the present. Now, you can look across the room. We really exist. Likewise, because these are written in Scripture, these promises are just as certain as we exist. This, this will be our possession because Christ has promised it to us. He is a faithful witness. And so, John says, to him be glory and dominion forever. Again, he deserves to be worshipped. Because he has purchased all these things for us. We have not brought these blessings on ourselves. But also because 
He is the ultimate ruler. He deserves glory and dominion because he created all things. All authority in heaven and earth likewise has been given to him, as we read in Matthew 28. And one day, he will physically reign upon the earth and take dominion over it until, until all sin has been eradicated from its midst. Right? This, we read this earlier, 1 Corinthians 15. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And thus John turns from praising Christ for what he has done to then what he will do in verse 7. Behold, He's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. He says he's going to come on the clouds repeatedly in Scripture. The, the manner of Christ's return is said to be in the clouds. That's how it's described in Daniel chapter 7. It says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And, and because the Messiah is going to come on the clouds, that's how we will know he's the real Messiah. As, as, we, as we saw in the, all of that discourse in Mark and Matthew, there's going to be a, during the last days, there's going to be a lot of people rising up claiming to be the Messiah. We will know they're fakes because the real Messiah will come on the clouds. And his coming will not be pleasant for most people. It says, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great, great glory. That's Matthew 24, 30. When, they, when, when, people, when every eye sees Christ coming, their response will be mourning. Because every eye will see him, it says. Now, that's, that's kind of a, a mind boggler. How will that happen? Well, it could be through the use of modern technology. It's possible. It could also be that God will use some other supernatural means, giving us eyesight to see him, even if he arrives on the other side of the planet. It could also just be an idiom that conveys um, that everyone will know who he is. Nobody's going to doubt that he's the Messiah. And that's why they will wail. Because this is their true king. This is the one that they have been in rebellion against. And they'll realize their loyalty was very poorly misplaced. The section then ends in verse 8. With a repeated affirmation of God's sovereign rule over time. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God. Who is and who was. And it was to come, the Almighty. And this is our hope. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to cling to the reality of who you are. 
Lord, as, as we face trouble and trials, uncertainty as to what's going on in the world and what's going on in the church, Lord, that we would not be shaken because we know you are absolutely in control of everything that's going on. And you will bring every single precious promise that you have made to its absolute fulfillment. Christ, we thank you for giving us grace, for opening our eyes, that we might behold the splendor of your word, that we might see our need for you and trust you. We ask that you would continue to deepen our convictions and to prepare us for the work that you've called us to do even in these last days. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.